Well, this morning we're going to continue our study of Hebrews, and uh, I've, I've, I've uh, given you the citation here, Hebrews 8, 1. Uh, I'm not going to read all of that. I feel kind of like a mother this week because I've given birth to twins. There's two sermons that I was trying to preach as one, and it was just we'd be here all afternoon. Because the more you dive into it, the more is there. And so I've given you an outline that, that kind of shows where I'm going with this. And we're just going to look at chapter 8 today. And the, and the, first, the first point on that sermon outline is all we're going to look at today, which is the covenant, the new covenant. Um, but uh, you'll see there, if you've got an outline, what I'm talking about. And you have to come back next week to to get the rest of the story, kind of like Paul Harvey, for those of you who remember Paul Harvey. But Hebrews chapter 8. Now the author of Hebrews has been making an argument in beginning in chapter 4 that Jesus is the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he, he breaks from his argument. It's kind of a parenthesis in what he's saying. And he is just... Uh, on fire to exhort them to not their, abandon their faith in Christ. This one he's been talking about, this great high priest. And after he exhorts them a little bit, he returns in chapter 7 to his argument and, and shows, it was what we looked at last week, that Jesus is that high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now here in chapter 8 through the middle of chapter 10, he further tells us why Jesus' ministry as a high priest is more excellent than the earthly priests who serve according to the law, the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood that was established under Moses. And so we are finding out today the excellencies of Jesus' ministry. And I'm going to first start looking at this, this uh, idea of the new covenant that is what uh, guides and directs Jesus' ministry as the great high priest. Well, let's turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with them, with the, that I will make with the house 
of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And may God bless the reading and hearing of his most holy word to us this morning. Well, have you ever wondered why what we are doing here this morning is called a worship service? I've been stressing that word. I don't know if you noticed, but I've been talking about this being a service to the Lord. Or that what we do uh, during the service is called liturgy. The, the order of worship and the elements that are there is called liturgy. Well, those two words, service and liturgy, are bound up together because liturgy is from the Greek word that means service or ministry. So we're actually saying the same thing, a worship service or worship liturgy is, is, uh, is, is the same thing over and over again. The primary, well, the idea here is what we're doing here in this, this, this hour that we've gathered together is a service or a ministry to God. We are all here to serve the Lord. And in doing so, we do receive blessings, but that's not the primary purpose. We are here at church to serve, not to be served, but when we do serve the Lord, we receive a blessing for that service. Now in this passage before us today, Jesus, Jesus is called a, the Greek word is liturgos, which is where we get the word liturgy from. And he has a liturgia, which is the, uh, a minister who has a ministry or a servant who has a service. So we think about ourselves coming before God and serving him, but what Jesus is doing in his ministry as a high priest is serving his people. He, he, is, uh, he has got a liturgy that he's doing, uh, a service he's rendering at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And we've been exploring that over the past few months as we've looked at these previous chapters of Hebrews that I've talked to you about. Well, look at chapter 8, verse 2. It says, Jesus is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent or tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. And then verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. Now, you see there on your outlines, Jesus has this excellent ministry that is better than the old ministry because of three things. First, because it is based on the superior new covenant. And second, because it takes place in the true sanctuary or true tabernacle. And then third, because he presents a full and final sacrifice. And as I mentioned, I only want to tackle the first one here this morning. Well, Jesus' ministry is based on the new covenant that he mediates. Well, here's another thing for you to Think about. Have you ever wondered why the two halves of the Bible are called the Old Testament and the New Testament? 
Why, why, why the word testament? Well, testament is an old English word that actually means covenant. Or in Latin, testamentum. It, it, this term testamentum was used to translate the Greek and Hebrew words for covenant, berit in Hebrew and diatheke in Greek. And diatheke is all in this passage that we read this morning and it will continue to be in uh, chapter 9 and 10 as well. In fact, the writer of Hebrews uses the word covenant more than all the rest of the New Testament combined. He's big on exploring this idea of covenant. Well, it's, it, we, we talk about the Old and New Testament, and really what we should be saying is the Old and New Covenant, because that's what it's talking about. That's what we're referring to. The two parts of scriptures are not testaments in the modern sense, and, and what I mean in the modern sense is like a last will and testament. You know, we don't use that word testament much anymore. Uh, but it's a will, and a will is kind of a covenant. It's an agreement. I'm agreeing to pass on to my heirs certain things, and it's a contract that you, legal document that you have that is an agreement between two parties or the parties involved. So the, the, new, the Old Testament are not, that, that doesn't apply to the Old and New Testament. The word covenant is what applies there. So it's unfortunate that the English word testament is still used to describe the old and new covenants. Anyway, what is a covenant? We're talking about covenants here this morning. What is a covenant? And we've already said it was a, it's an agreement between uh, two parties. In the case of the biblical covenants, it's, uh, it's a relationship, a, a bond that is created by God with his people. Uh, God is a God who relates through covenants. And you see it from the very beginning in Genesis. God makes a covenant with Adam. Uh, he, he enacts a covenant of works. If you do this, you'll live eternally. If you will refrain from eating of the forbidden fruit, then you will live forever. And, of course, that was broken. That covenant was broken. And then G the Lord God enacts a new covenant, the covenant of grace in Genesis 3. And he promises a redeemer who will ultimately crush the head of Satan. And that covenant of grace is further developed throughout the Bible. Now there are covenants made with Noah, for example. I will no longer destroy the earth in this manner that I did with the flood. There's a covenant made with Abraham that he would have descendants and land and, and he would be a blessing to the nations. There's the covenant with Moses, which is what this is talking about. When we talk about the, 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 the old covenant, we're talking really primarily about the covenant with Moses. When Moses was given the law, he was given all the directives on not only the Ten Commandments, but the ceremonial law and all the sacrificial system and, and all the, the various ceremonies that the people of Israel needed to follow in order to have a relationship with God. And then God made a covenant with David that uh, someone from his line would sit on the throne forever. And then the prophets start talking about the new covenant, and that's what we're exploring today. The difference between what Jesus is enacting and what Moses enacted. So that's the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant in the way that this is being described here for us today. 
God relates to people through covenants. And we, we, we have covenants. Maybe you live in a neighborhood that has a neighborhood covenant. And uh, you, there's certain agreements between everybody that lives there and certain rules by which you live by. Uh, marriage is probably the best example of a covenant relationship. Two people have come together. They've made vows to one another. They have, they have a bond that is that is uh, sealed and they have a, uh, a marriage license and, and they're bound together in that relationship forever. Well, not forever, ever, but as long as they both shall live. So this idea of covenant is something that is throughout Scripture. God is a God who relates to people through covenant relationships. And there's a new relationship that came, a new way to have a relationship with God that came when Jesus arrived on the scene. And that's what he's talking about. The way things were done in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant are different than the way that things are done in the New Testament or New Covenant. The Old Covenant served, first of all, we see here in the outline, the Old Covenant served as a copy and shadow of the New Covenant. Now look at verse 4. Uh, he's talking about Jesus. If Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. The law there, you can use the word covenant as well. Uh, they, they are operating, the priests at the temple were operating under the old Mosaic law. They had certain sacrifices that they made for the people and on the day of the atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make that sacrifice for the sins of the people, and they had certain rules to follow. They serve, verse 5, a, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses was given a, a pattern of something greater. And what Moses enacted and what Moses received was just a copy uh, or a shadow of the reality uh, of the real thing that was coming later. Now, we, we, thought, we think about uh, models. We, you know, maybe if you were, when you were younger, you uh, put together model boats or model cars or both, and maybe you're still doing it now. Um, but I enjoyed doing that some. And now, my model cars, I, I was proud of them, but... They weren't a real car. They weren't the real thing. They were just a copy of the real thing. They were uh, a model or an example because that, that, uh, the word copy can mean model or example. Hebrews 10.1 says, The law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And then in verse chapter 10, now just chapter 10, 1, that's all I want to read there. But you remember what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus when he had risen from the, the dead. Uh, he encounters two disciples on the road there, and they're all uh, confused about what's happened. They thought Jesus was the Messiah, but then he was put to death, and now they've gotten the news that that uh, some women saw that Jesus was uh, not in the grave anymore and that they had uh, seen angels and the angels said that Jesus was uh, risen from the grave and they didn't know what to think about all this. And, 
And they didn't recognize Jesus as he came up uh, and, and joined them on their, on their travels. And then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then this is the key verse. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So see, what he's saying is he went back through the entire Old Testament and showed them how it was all about him. It was a pattern. It was a model. It was an example that was pointing toward him the reality. The reality. So the Old Covenant, that sacrificial system, all the sacrifices and and ceremonies that the Israelites engaged in at the tabernacle and then the temple, those were all just a, a copy, a shadow of the later reality. So the Old Covenant... This shadow, this copy, is obsolete. Verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with him when he says, and he reads Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. See, that old covenant was faulty. It it, it did not accomplish uh, what it set out to do in that it didn't save anyone. It just pointed to what could save them. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. See, the new covenant replaces the old covenant. And if the prophets are promising this new covenant, why would they need a new covenant if the old one was good enough? And that's the logic he's using here. If they, they promised a new covenant, why did they promise that if the old one was good enough? You see, these people were considering going back to Judaism. They were being persecuted for being Christians and, and they were uh, finding it difficult to live out the Christian life day in and day out. And so they were thinking, you know, we had it better in Judaism. And so they were ready to give up the faith. And that's why he's saying, don't go back to the old. You've got the new. The, the old is obsolete. It was just a copy and shadow of the true reality. And he says that the covenant, the new covenant, has much better promises. Verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And he's referring to that Jeremiah 31 passage. Verse 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put... My laws into their minds and write write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the first thing that's better than the old covenant is that that the new covenant promises a new heart. See, he's not just saying you're going to memorize the law. They did that in the Old Testament. You remember in Deuteronomy. You know, these things that I'm commanding you today, Moses told the second generation... In the, in the wilderness, he said, 
You are to learn them, put them on the lintels of your door and tie them on your head and wear them around and teach your children and all of that. You are to know the law. But memorization of the law didn't guarantee performance. See, they, they fell short. They, they broke the covenant repeatedly. They didn't have the power to follow the law. Now, some people today think they do have the power to follow the law, that they think that I'm going to be good enough, I'm going to follow the, the rules and the laws, and, and when I stand before God, my goods are going to outweigh my bads, and, and, and I'm going to get into heaven because of that. Well, that's faulty thinking because you need a new heart, a new nature, and you can't get that unless you come to Jesus. See, we need a new heart, a new nature. When Ezekiel prophesied, about the new covenant, here's what he said. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put, in, put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Again, that's the covenant promise that uh, is made to God's people. Isn't it amazing? You can have a new heart today. A, a new heart. What a blessing. You know, our hearts are weighed down with many things, and especially with our sins and our guilt. But Jesus promises a new heart, and that's better than anything following the law could ever give you. The second thing that we see here, a better promise from the new covenant, is a personal relationship with God. Verse 11 they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Now see, Israel in the Old Testament, they had a knowledge of God. I mean, God had revealed himself to them in, in, in ways that none of the other nations enjoyed. I mean, God appeared to them through their prophets, through their patriarchs. God gave them his law God did many things for Israel. He gathered them out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land. Um, they knew the Lord in some ways, but they didn't have that personal experience, and Israel tended to forget God. You'll see it when you hit Judges. If you're reading through the Scriptures from beginning to end, you'll see when you hit Judges, and they have gone into the promised land, the great high point in, this, in the scriptures, when, when the Israelites occupy the land, they drive out most of the people there. But then about chapter 2 of Judges, it says, but the next generation did not know the Lord. God had done that great thing of bringing them out of Egypt, through the desert, into the promised land, and then all of a sudden, a generation didn't know the Lord at all. And when Hannah prays her prayer before the birth of Samuel, she bemoans the fact that there is no knowledge of God in the land. The Israelites tended to forget God. But the New Covenant says that you can have a personal relationship with God. A personal relationship with God. Isn't it wonderful? You can know God today. You can have a relationship with God today. Do you have a relationship with God today? I mean, you can... Just coming to church and, and being religious is not having a relationship with God. 
those things are supposed to foster your relationship with God. We need those things to foster our relationship with God. But we can sit here and daydream and, and go through the motions and everybody thinks we're fine when we're really not enjoying a personal relationship with God. And sometimes we can forget God as well. Are you walking in a personal relationship with God? Are you looking at His Word? Are you reaching out to Him in prayer? Are you coming to worship to worship Him? These are marks of a personal relationship with God. Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Not just in the facts, but in how God is, is working in, in your life and, and knowing Him in a personal relationship, kind of like a marriage relationship. It's a covenant relationship. You know, you, the more you are around one another in a marriage, the more you get to know one another, for good or for ill. But with God, it's always good, because He's He's good. And you're learning and growing in your love and knowledge of Him. So it's not just head knowledge, it's a heart knowledge, a personal relationship that comes with that new heart. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing, mercy and forgiveness. And we'll talk more about this in the coming, uh, in next week when we talk about the sacrifice Jesus makes. But verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now, this is an important point because what he's promising is more than ever came in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. If you look forward, flip forward to chapter 9, verse 9, uh, he's talking about the ceremonies, uh, the sacrifices of the Old Testament. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect <clears throat> the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. So these things don't, don't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form... Of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And look at verse 4 of chapter 10. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In chapter 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And then verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, he says the law, yeah, it can purify the flesh if you get ceremonial, uh, ceremonially unclean, like if you touch a dead body or you're... you're declared unclean through some action of yours, those ceremonies, those sacrifices can cause you to be clean again in your flesh, but they cannot purify the conscience. Only Jesus' blood can do that. If those things, the writer of Hebrews says, if those old cer ceremonies and sacrifices can make someone be considered clean, then how much more with the blood of Christ will our consciences be purified? 
So Jesus, through this new covenant, he will be merciful toward our iniquities and will remember their sins no more. Isn't it wonderful that today your sins can be forgiven? You can be cleansed and your conscience can be clear. Maybe you've been imperfect. Maybe you've sinned greatly. Maybe you don't think that God can forgive you. Well, he can and he will. He, he can, through the blood of Christ, cleanse any sin. We just call on him. Well, finally, and I just briefly want to highlight this fact that Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. And we've talked a bit about mediate, him being a mediator in the past. Chapter 3 says he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. So he's an apostle. He is sent from God to us. He represents God to man. We, when we see Jesus, we are encountering God. But as a high priest, he's representing us to the Father. So he is the mediator between God and man, bringing us together. Only in him and through his blood can we be at one with God again, have a relationship with him through the cleansing of our hearts, giving us that new heart and forgiving our sins. So Jesus is that legal intermediary who represents two parties and through whose work a new relationship is established. See, that was what Jesus did. He's, through him, he is making it uh, possible for us to have a relationship with a holy God, our creator, the one who, who we are made to know. That's what we were created for. So in conclusion, I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 10 because that's where he <clears throat> concludes it in verse 22. Of chapter 10, he says three things. First of all, well, let's back up to 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, that's the new covenant, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, three things. First, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, draw near to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Don't refuse him, but cry out to him. Call upon him. Draw near to the Lord, and he will draw near to you. Give you that new heart, cleansed conscience, and have a relationship with him. And secondly, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is a covenant promise that Jesus has made, that God is making with his people. A covenant promise and God cannot lie. And he's backed it up with an oath on top of that. So trust the Lord. Trust in his promises. Hold fast the confession. Don't grow dull. Don't grow apathetic about it, but cling to the Lord. And then 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need the family of God that we talked about earlier in the service. We need one another. We need to encourage one another and spur one another on to love and good works, to know the Lord. And we can be encouraged and be encouragers 
in the family of God. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us. These people were in dire straits with their faith. And these are the things that they needed to correct that. Run to Jesus, hold fast to the faith, and encourage, find encouragement with the people of God. I don't know where you are today, uh, but if you are in need of a church home, we're one that will always point you to Jesus, encouraging you in the faith. Some of us in this room, I'm sure, are struggling. These are difficult times in which we live. I want to encourage you to draw near to Jesus. I want to encourage you to hold fast to him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And through him, we can come to the Father. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we pray that that all of us here today would come to know you. Lord, we thank you that you have established the new covenant and you have promised to give us a, a new heart and to be in relationship with you and to forgive our sins. Lord, we pray that we would enjoy these blessings by faith. Grant us repentance from our sins. Help us to, to, to continuously run to you. And Lord, we pray that we would bond together with you and your people, that we might be built up in that faith. Lord, if anybody here doesn't know you, I pray that they would come to know you with boldness, cling to you, trust in you, turn from sin and and ask for your forgiveness and, and to give them a new heart and a fresh relationship with you. Lord, we pray that we would press on from this point. It doesn't matter what, what the past has held. If we come to you, you will give us this newness, this fresh start. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us all a fresh start today and that we would press on towards the goal of the high calling in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.